0: We are going to look at John chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, turn there with me. Today, I want to consider with you what I think are some of the most significant verses in the Bible. Uh, one commentator describing these verses said they describe the, the union or the relationship that really is the essence of Christianity. This is Jesus speaking to his closest disciples in the upper room the night before he goes to be crucified. And these are effectively his part of his uh, departing instructions. And really, I think what we're going to read is Christ's manifesto for flourishing. Jesus' manifesto for flourishing. How to flourish when he will no longer be with his disciples in person and, of course, That's the situation we find ourselves in as well. And really, in essence, you're going to hear this. The the fundamental instruction in this passage is to abide with him, to remain connected to him. You'll hear it 11 times, I think, during this passage. And we're going to unpack that, what that means. But at its core, the fundamental implication of that instruction that we're going to hear is you are utterly dependent on Christ. We are being reminded of our dependence on Christ. And yet I think there's something even more fundamental that I think it would be very easy to miss before we read this passage. And as you read it, and that is the vision of flourishing that Christ is presenting to us in this passage. This idea of fruitfulness is a radically different vision of flourishing than our world thinks. In a sense, Christ's vision of success, of what the successful life looks like, is radically different to what I think most of us are aiming at. And so as we look at this passage, I want us to examine what does Christ mean by the fruitful life? What, does he, what is his purpose for your life? Because I think what you might see is it's different to what you imagine. Let's read John 15, verse 1 to 17 by the way, this passage is so intricate. You've got to listen for every verse. So don't, don't tune out. Listen carefully to what Christ has to say. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser, the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command to you so that you will love one another. Let me pray. Lord, as we hear these words, Lord, I pray that they would sink deep into our souls And pray you would come and do a work in us, each one of us. That we would hear you speaking to us loudly and clearly and that we would respond in the way that you want us to respond. Lord, we just submit ourselves to you now. So come and have your way in us. Come and teach us. Come and open our eyes. Come and impart your wisdom to us. Help us to understand what you're calling us to. Amen. So really, what I want you to see is that there are two types of branches being described here. And I want you to imagine with me two kind of vineyards that illustrate what Christ is describing. On one vineyard, and maybe you've been to the south of France or in Italy, and you've seen these kind of beautiful vineyards with uh, the vine is often kind of horizontal, about a metre off the ground, running for hundreds of metres into the distance. And and on that vine is a kind of... uh, Hundreds of juicy, bulging bunches of grapes shimmering in the sun. Just looking at them just wets your, your mouth as you look at the grapes and just thinking, imagining quenching your thirst with those beautiful grapes or the, or the wine that's going to be produced with those grapes gleaming in the sun. And as you see that picture of a vine which is just laden with fruit, one of your first reactions is, what a gardener. What an impressive uh, horticulturalist that would construct and and, and tend to this garden that it would be flourishing and full and juicy and ripe and so much life is there. It looks abundant and verdant. That's one picture. And then you see another picture. And this time you see a vine. The vine's there, but you see a few branches and perhaps a, a few wild grapes, but really it's a barren and desolate picture. The branch is just kind of hanging, hanging on to the vine, or perhaps it's on the floor, and it's dead. And you know what the only thing that's left to do with these dead branches they are there is the gardener's going to come and sweep them up and burn them. And it's a picture of kind of death. It's a desolate picture. Looks kind of neglectful, doesn't it? It looks a kind of tragic picture. You think, There's no, this is so far from what it should be. And what do these two pictures really represent? And they're a kind of stark contrast that, that Christ is giving us. Almost as two, two ways to live, you might say. Two options for you. The fruitful picture displays, I think, ultimately what Christ intends for each one of us. Those, it describes really those who are deeply connected to Christ. Who are allowing themselves to be shaped and even to be transformed by Christ. Christ. They look radically different to the world around them. Their life is full of Christ's life. They resemble him. They are full of his love. They represent his character. They are vitally and deeply connected to Christ. They are joyful, prayerful, obedient people, and they glorify the garden. <laughs> they point to a, beautiful, a God who is able to make beautiful, holy people who look like Christ. On the other hand, you have these fruitless branches. They they describe really, well, perhaps a very familiar tale. Those of those and you've probably all met them. They're probably some of the folk in this room, those who are Christian by name only. Uh, they hold the name of Christ. They call themselves a Christian. They may think they're alive, but they're actually spiritually dead. There's no fruit of Christ's work in their lives. They don't really look any different to the people around them. They're stressed and anxious as the people uh, they spend their days with, they're disconnected from Christ. They're not being changed by him. They just look like everybody else. And we'll come back to that problem, very specific problem, later. But I think for many of us, you probably feel like somewhere in between the two. You wouldn't say, "My life doesn't feel particularly spiritually fruitful. I can't really resonate, or ref- I don't really resonate with this picture, of this beautiful flourishing vine with all the sorts of fruit. And maybe I feel, in theory, connected to Christ, but often He feels distant from me. And really, wherever you're at today, there are two exhortations that I would want you to hear. Wherever you find yourself in this picture, two two words. Really, I want you to hear them individually from Christ so to speak. The first is Christ is saying to each one of you, I want to make you fruitful. Christ is saying, I want to make you fruitful, to put my life and my love in you and to change you that you resemble me. That's the first thing. I want to make you fruitful. And the second thing that I think we hear from this passage loudly and clearly is Christ is saying, you cannot do this on your own. Come to me. Come and abide with me. Remain connected to me. Those are the two instructions that I want to unpack with you. And really to do it, I have three questions for us to consider. The first is, do you desire a fruitful life? Do you desire a fruitful life? And what I mean by that is, do you desire Christ's vision for your life? Do you share his purpose for your life? And I want to show you what that is. Second of all, do you realise how dependent you are on Christ? Do you feel and recognise your dependence on Christ? And thirdly, how do we abide? What is this passage really saying? What is the instruction for us? What does this actually require us to do? So do you desire a fruitful life? That's the first question. I want you to hear Christ's vision of a fruitful life here really because I suspect for many of you you don't actually desire what Christ is describing here. I want you to see the beauty of the fruitful life that Christ is describing here that you would say in a way with Christ, Christ would you do it in me? Christ would you do it in me? And the first thing I want you to see from this passage is Christ is unequivocal that he wants to make you fruitful. Did you hear the verse 16? You did not choose me, but I chose you. Why? I appointed you why? that you should go and bear fruit, and your fruit should abide. I saved you, I chose you, because I wanted you to bear fruit. So why did Christ save you? Why did Christ go to the cross? Well, in one sense we say at a very simple level, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that Christ went to the cross out of love for each one of you, that he was willing to go and be humiliated and killed in the most gruesome of ways, To experience the punishment from the Father on your behalf. Why? Because He loves you. That's absolutely at the heart of the Christian faith. And yet, that's not all the picture. That's not the complete picture. Christ intended to save you to Himself and to make you a fundamentally different person, to bear His fruit in your life. Such that, and then you've got to imagine this as a kind of collective picture, such that Christ would win for Himself a people who look radically different. Imagine the branches, thousands and thousands of branches spread throughout the world. And the impact of those collective branches who resemble the vine is that they resemble something of the beauty of Christ. That in their collective beauty, they glorify the Father. Christ intended to win for himself a people who look distinctive, whose lives look fruitful. And that is why he saved you. That is his purpose in saving you, is that he might be glorified in your life. You hear Christ's intent is clear in this passage that he wants fruitful branches. That's why in verse 2 he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. It's almost like the branch has no purpose. If it's fruitless, you might as well just throw it away. Why? And then, and then even if you are bearing fruit, what's his purpose in your life? And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Christ's intent is clear that he wants fruitful disciples. To put it negatively, you can't be a Christian and have no tangible evidence of following Christ in your life. He intends our lives to reflect something of his beauty. So we have to then, of course, answer, what do we mean by fruitfulness? This whole passage is about an instruction, a call, maybe it's not an instruction, but a call, certainly, a desire, Christ's purpose to make you fruitful. So what do we mean by fruitfulness? Well, at the essence, I think this is describing Christ-likeness, Christ-likeness. It's an organic picture of branches connected to the vine, and as they are connected to him, they experience his life at work in them. And they resemble more of the person of Christ. It, like the, you've heard the phrase, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It's like the, the branches need to resemble the vine. As you remain connected to Christ, he changes you to become like him. He leaves a tangible mark on you. One writer said, it is the life of Jesus himself reproduced, in the life of the disciples in the midst of the world. My question is, do you feel like Jesus is reproducing himself in you? Do you feel like he is replicating something of his character and person in your life? You know, you've done the maybe you've uh, you've raised children or been around family this, this Christmas, and uh, and you and you know when sometimes you see a picture of a child, you say, oh, he he or she bears a family resemblance. They look like that uncle or that parent or that grandparent. You know, you can see the the the, the family member they're connected to in them. That is, I think, something of what Christ intends you to be to bear something of the family resemblance to look something like the Lord who you are connected to, who you are abiding with. And I think you can see that at a number of levels in this passage. You can see it in this idea of character and conduct. You see, this idea of fruitfulness, of fruit that resembles the tree, is there all the way through Scripture. So look at um, Luke chapter 6 with me, and he describes, really, this idea of fruit as a metaphor for the character and conduct of your life. Uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasurer's heart produces good. The evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The good and the evil that that Jesus is describing there is, he's describing the conduct and character of your life. He's saying, effectively, we will see what's really going on in your heart by the way you live. And so when Christ is using this, this metaphor of fruit in your life, he is describing your character and conduct You see this again and again all the way through scriptures. You see it in Paul when he describes the fruit of the Spirit. What kind of fruit? What does the fruit of the Spirit look like? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I wonder, could you put your name and and then insert your name in front of those adjectives? How much would people who know you, how how much would people who observe the fruit of your life, your your work colleagues, for example, the people you spend your time with on a daily basis, how much would they say that you resemble that list, that description of fruit? How patient are you with the people around you who frustrate you? How self-controlled are you? Have you mastered those desires in your life that you know harm and destroy you, perhaps harm and hurt the people around you. How much are those fruits true of you? How much do you, have you begun to resemble the person of Christ? So fruit describes character and conduct, but it's not just good character. Jesus seems to be putting a very specific emphasis on the first of those fruits, that list, which is love. You heard the instruction that he gave to his disciples, and he puts it right in the, in the middle of this passage as a way, in a way of saying, underscoring, in a way, maybe the ultimate command, the, the ultimate mark of fruitfulness in the life of the Christian is love. That's why he instructs them this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends. In one sense, then we might say the command of the Christian life is to live a life of love. But the problem we've, we know, we encounter when we think about love is that so often we think of it as a kind of tepid sense of affection for others, maybe a sense of warmth towards other people, a smile to a stranger. Those things are not wrong, of course. But if we're not talking about 21st century vision of love here. This is the sacrificial love of Christ, a fruitfulness We will see fruit in your life if your life is full of loving service towards others, especially the church. Remember, he's speaking to the disciples. In fact, he closes this instruction with these things I command you so that you will love one another. It's almost like before we even talk talk about outside this room, the first test of whether there is fruit in your life. The first first test we might say of whether you are really a disciple is whether your life is marked by the same sacrificial love that we observe in the person of Christ. Have you made yourself a servant of the people around you? Have you said, no, my my calling is to to pass on the same love that I've received from Christ, to live a life of love? And then when you see this together, when you see a community where people are taking this seriously, the call to serve one another in love, the call to lay down their lives to one another, it looks stunning. It looks beautiful. You see different people taking opportunity to serve different other folks in need. The collective power of that, that is, that is a picture of beauty, when you see an in action that, rem- that is meant to remind us a bit like that vineyard with those, all those different bunches of grapes hanging off the vine. You look at that and think, that's beautiful. In the same way, when you see a church community of people who really love one another, who really take seriously the call to serve one another in need, who look for the needs around them and say, you are my brother or sister and I care for you because of that. I will sacrifice myself for you. That is something beautiful. So it's, it's, it's fruit of character and conduct. It's love but it's also an impact on others. This is not an introverted picture. Note where it comes. It's all part of this um, set of instructions that Jesus is giving to his disciples before he leaves them, before, and he's sending them out into the world. He, just after this passage, he describes how they're going to experience hatred from the world. In fact, even in this passage, you see verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Go and bear fruit. Don't go and bear fruit in your bedroom on your own. And so it might be quite easy to, 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 I feel really loving as I pray to God on my own. Well, that's not really a good test of whether or not you're actually bearing fruit. Go and bear fruit it seems to imply that the fruit that you bear will also mean an impact on others' lives. A desire to impact the people around you. In fact, in John chapter 4, Jesus is speaking about uh, just seeing the Samaritan woman respond to his words, and he's speaking to his, his disciples, and he tells them that he has fruit for eternal life for them to reap. That, that picture of fruit, it speaks of Christ impacting others through your life. So there we have something of a composite picture of what it means to be fruitful. That Christ is calling you to, to be those who resemble him, who've taken on his character in some small, imperfect way, who start to look like Christ. Those who are marked by the love of Christ and those who seek to have and do, in fact, have an impact on others. That is the fruitfulness that I think Jesus is describing here. Do you see this fruit in your life? Do you see this fruit in your life? Because this passage is so clear there's no such thing as a fruitless disciple. There's no such thing as a fruitless disciple. You can't be attached to the vine and bear no fruit. That is a category error. And that this speaks to that idea of nominal Christianity that I spoke about right at the beginning. Those who would bear the name of Christ but have no tangible evidence of that in their lives. One writer put it out of this, fruitfulness is the infallible mark of true Christianity. If you see no desire for Christ in your life, if you see no change in your character, no love for others, and I'm not just talking about love for your friends and your family, Jesus says effectively, that's easy. Everyone does that. Everyone loves the people who love them. The question is, do you see a love for people outside that small, intimate community? Are you able to walk in contradiction to Christ's commands and feel no sense of conviction? You have to ask yourself, are you really a Christian? I was speaking to a young man recently um, who, you know, was, had a life that didn't really reflect obedience to Christ. Was sleeping with his girlfriend, felt no conviction about that, wasn't going to church, um, showed no real marks of a desire to follow Christ. And yet he described himself as a Christian and was confident, in fact, at the beginning of our conversation, that he was saved because he said, well, I, you know, I effectively could think back to a time when he um, prayed to receive Christ and receive his forgiveness, and actually, I spent the conversation basically trying to persuade him that he wasn't a Christian. That he wasn't actually saved. That actually, he, he, although he might bear the name of Christ, that wasn't reflected in his life. And I hear afterwards he came to that conclusion that he was convinced he wasn't actually saved. And why did I do that? Because it's a bit awkward, and I'm British, and I don't like to offend people like the rest of you. And, and the answer is, well, because he has got to do him a service here. He's got to see that he's not a Christian, because now he can grapple with the reality. Am I really willing to surrender my life? to Christ? Maybe some of you need to ask yourself that question. Am I really a Christian? If, I can't, if you can't see fruit in your life, you, may need to ask, you should ask yourself that question. Now, some of you, I know I speak to the other extreme, and there'll be those who feel like your life is a mess. You want to follow Christ, but you can see the mess around you. That doesn't mean you're not a Christian. The presence of sin doesn't mean you're not a Christian. I'm, t- I'm talking about someone who shows no desire to follow Christ, no fruit in their lives. So, we'll part that problem. But let me ask another question. Do you really want what Christ wants for you? As I reflect on this passage, I became so convinced that our aspiration for our life doesn't look like Christ's. We want the same thing as everybody else around us. We want a successful life. We want something of the applause and the financial rewards that come with that. Perhaps we want a family, a spouse and children, and those things are good, they're blessings but they're not Christ's primary goal for your life. Isn't that fascinating? They're not Christ's primary goal for your life. That Christ is more interested in the spiritual fruit of your life than the size of your pay packet, than the, the level of achievements that you accrue in this life. Christ is more interested in the type of person you are than the achievements that you rack up. There's a, a, a writer, Charlie Mackesy, who wrote a book, uh, The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse. And this um, it's kind of a cartoon book, but very popular. And, uh, and at one point, the child is asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he says, kind. And we might replace that with Christ-like, rather than just kindness, although that was one of the fruits. Um, it reflects the character of Christ in some way. But it does reflect something there, doesn't it? What are you really pursuing? Are you just pursuing the same goals as all the people around you? Or are you actually pursuing the spiritual fruit that Christ intends for your life? Christ is more interested in the spiritual fruit of your life rather than the size of your pay packet or the achievements of this life. Are you saying, I want to leave a lasting impact on the people around me? that some of the people, a few of the people who I come into contact with might seek Christ because of what they see in your life. What are you chasing? What are you pursuing? Is it the same as Christ's desire for your life? Even think about your New Year's resolutions. Many of you made New Year's resolutions to be fitter, to be more effective at work, to spend more time with your family. Good aims, no doubt. But not many of us, I suspect, said I want to be a more tangible picture of the love of Christ to the people around me. I want the people who I spend most time around me to see Christ in me. As impossible as that might sound, I believe that that is Christ's purpose for you. So hear Christ's intent for your life. He wants to change your character. He wants to take the impatience that you naturally feel and replace it with his loving, unending patience. To to replace your mixed motives of good and bad with his purity and goodness. To replace your fickleness and flakiness with his faithfulness. What Christ intends for you is nothing short of a personality transplant. And of course, this is not quick work. Think about how fruit grows. Think about apples or peaches or pears or grapes or whatever it is. You know it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. Abiding in the vine is something that cannot happen quickly, as we'll come on to. This is the deep, long-term growth that God wants to work in your life. He wants to reshape the whole posture you have in relating to others. That your whole way of interacting with the world might be characterized by his sacrificial love. He wants to reshape how you would do marriage, that you wouldn't approach your spouse with an inherent selfish tendency that almost all of you will do naturally, but instead he wants your marriages to be marked by the same sacrificial love that we see in Christ. That's why Paul gives the instruction, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Be willing to give yourself ultimately to die for your spouse Win thousands of small sacrifices To have marriages marked by sacrifice, service, repentance. To create beautiful marriages that point to the beautiful saviour. Or workplaces. That you might actually genuinely enter into work saying, I want to love my colleagues. And the way to start that is to pray for them. To pray for them. That you wouldn't just see them as a kind of another being in the same entity as you, but that you might actually hold in your heart something of Christ's love and affection and desire for that person. That you might treat each person you work with with dignity and honour and respect and if necessary forgiveness. That you might be a Christ-like presence in your workplace. Or even in the church. That you might say, I am going to make myself a servant of the people in my life group. I'm going to look for opportunities to serve others, to move towards needs. So is that it? Is that, is that the, uh, the instruction, go and be fruitful? You might think it is, but that's not the instruction that Jesus is giving here. He's not saying go and be fruitful. He aspires, he desires fruitfulness in your life, but that's not the instruction here. The instruction is to abide, to let the gardener take care of the fruit in your life. I want you to desire this. I want you to long for the fruitfulness that Christ desires in your life, but I don't want you to now go away and say, right, I better be fruitful. That's not the instruction here. The instruction is come to me. And I think many of us don't do that. And the reason is, is because we don't realise how dependent we are on him. We do not realise that we cannot do this on our own. So my second question for you is, do you realise how dependent you are on Christ? Jesus' primary exhortation here is not fruitfulness, but is abiding in him. Remain connected to me. We don't realise how dependent we are on Christ. Hear Christ's challenge in verse 5 that he gives to the disciples. This should be ringing in your ears. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I want to humble you with the vision of what Christ intends for your life and then go even further and say you can't even do this without him. you are completely unable to do the things that Christ is calling for you to do without his work in your life. The Christian faith is not a manifesto for flourishing. It's not like a blog post with 10 quick ideas of how to change your life. It's a relationship. It's an invitation to come and commune with Christ, to remain connected with him and to allow him to reshape everything about your life. This says this gives a radical different, what we might call anthropology. To, our, to the way that our world thinks about us. We were bred up to see ourselves as independent, autonomous beings, those who would seek to adventure into life and, and kind of leave, blaze a trail behind us, to go and explore and find out, and really, that the our own lives depended on us. We were independent beings who might connect with other people, but fundamentally to consider ourselves as kind of independent entities. And this is no. No, the picture of the vine and the branches says your whole life does not make sense unless you are connected to the vine. That you are made as a dependent creature and you are made to receive the life and sustenance and flourishing from Christ. That in a sense to take you away is this equivalent of ripping a laptop away from the power. Eventually you're going to die whether you realise it or not, whether you feel like it or not, if you're not with Christ, you are living a kind of spiritual death. And the problem is you can't even see it because you haven't tasted what life is with Christ. It says you are utterly dependent on Christ. You are made to walk in communion with him, to depend on him. And only when you experience life with him will you experience the life, the flourishing and the joy that he always intended you to experience. We've said this illustration before, but it's such an important one. Christian maturity is different to the way we think about maturity. You know, If you're a parent, you have a child, and you hope that one day they grow up and they're independent, and you think maturity is independence. But in the Christian faith, it's not that. It's actually as you grow up in Christ-likeness, as you mature, you grow in a greater sense of dependence. Actually, Paul, the great um, pioneer of the faith, who could go around the, uh, much of Europe and, 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 and Turkey and the kind of Mediterranean region and achieve great things would be so deeply aware of his dependence on Christ that he strives, but he strives with the energy that comes from the living God. If you're not a Christian, you you are fundamentally unable to optimise your life without Christ. This speaks to the, the, the plethora of self-help books and self-help industry that exists because there is a longing for personal transformation in our culture. There is a great desire for the kind of fruitfulness, in some ways, that Christ might be describing here. But you will not do it unless you're attached to Christ. But if you're a Christian, it says the number one thing you need to learn, and perhaps one of the reasons why God will put us through various trials and challenges, the number one thing you need to learn is dependence on Christ. Maybe when you've learned that then you can seek to be a blessing to the world. Maybe when you've learned that, you can seek to achieve great things for God once you've established deep within your heart that I'm utterly unable to do this, except for depending on Christ. Stop relying on yourself. Stop relying on yourself. Isn't it exhausting to put the great weight of achieving the Christian life on your own shoulders? Say, I must... Summon up the energy to love all the people around me. What a ridiculous idea just to just look around the room. There's more than 150 people in here. Imagine loving each of them in your own strength. It's impossible, isn't it? The Christian life is full of impossible commands in your own strength that are only possible by relying on the Holy Spirit and God's work in your life to change you. That's why Paul says in Colossians 1:29, he's not saying this is just let go and let God it's about a dependence on him. It says, for this I toil, I work hard, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Christ wants to liberate you from the weight of moral transformation, of trying to beat yourself into submission, of beating yourself up when you fail. Christ wants to tell you that you simply need to come and abide with him and let him bear fruit in your life. Stop exhausting yourself by trying to rely on yourself. See the great gift of Christ that you are not on your own. I love, I absolutely adore the the fact that Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. Not just abide in me, not just you do something, I am going to come and abide in you. This is describing the kind of mystical, almost we say spiritual union that you experience with Christ. That you're connected to him, that, that he's not standing in heaven wagging his finger at you, at your moral indiscretions. He's not shouting at you from the sideline saying, Come on, do better. He's come to abide in you by his spirit to empower you and enable you and to be with you, enabling you to become the man or woman that he commands you, that he calls you to be. Isn't that liberating? Don't you just feel the weight lifted off your shoulders to know that Christ is abiding in you, working out the very commands that he is calling you to do. Christ is calling you. The pressure is off. But what does it mean then that Christ is calling us to abide? What is the great command? There is something for us to do here. What does Christ intend us to do? Christ is inviting us to be changed through this deep and mystical union that we abide by remaining connected to him, by allowing his words, his presence, and his love to change us deeply. By allowing his words, his presence, and his love to change us deeply. You see, that the abiding, the instruction he gives us, is. you'll find it in a number of different places. You see... In verse 9, he says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Remain in my love. Unless you are rooted in and deeply conscious, aware, convinced of the great love of Christ, you will not bear fruit. Unless you are grounded in the incredible love that we preach about each week, you will not bear fruit. That's why we need to be reminded of the gospel. That's why we take communion every week. Because we want, at the very heart of our Christian life, to be constantly reminded, overwhelmed even, of this great love that we did not deserve, that sent Christ to the cross on our behalf. That we see the love in his wounds and in his suffering, in his humiliation and his physical torture and in his willingness to endure the punishment from the Father. We see all of that. Why? Because it speaks of the great love, the desire that God has for each person in this room. And note, by the way, it's the same love of the Father. (laughs) Isn't that incredible? As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. As the Father loves Christ, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, love within the Godhead that has existed for all eternity. (laughs) The father delights in the son. Some of us who are doing uh, the CBR will have read this week in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 3. What does the father say about the son? And behold, this is after his baptism, behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And because of Christ's death on the cross, Christ would say that over you. Isn't that scandalous? That he would say, This is my beloved son or daughter, in whom I'm I'm well pleased with, because Christ went to the cross on your behalf. And so you've received the approval of the Father for the Son, (coughs) even though you didn't do anything to deserve it. This is my beloved son and daughter. Insert name here. That is incredible. And until you are rooted in that love, until you are overwhelmed with that love, again and again, you cannot bear fruit. Because now, when you understand that love, you realize I've got nothing to prove to the world. It doesn't matter if people think I'm an idiot, I'm a spiritual nutjob, whatever it is, it doesn't matter, because I'm loved by the king of the universe. By the way, this is not just a, a, a kind of intellectual thing. Remember, Paul tells the Ephesians that to pray. If you don't feel the love of God, if you said this is all just a, a kind of nice idea, well, read it, read about it, read the gospel, see the love of Christ, but also pray about it. Ask that God would reveal his love to you. We'd love to pray for you after the service. If you never felt the love of God, we'd love to pray because Paul seems to suggest that to really grasp the love of God is a spiritual work in your life. It's not just an intellectual one. The love of Christ will change you. You will naturally want to love others when you are full of the love of Christ. Second of all, obedience. How do we continue to remain in Christ's love? Obedience. Obedience. Isn't that fascinating? He's kind of saying, you can't claim that I love you and then just ignore my commands. As the Father loved me, so I loved you. Abide in my love. If you can keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my commandments and abide in his love. The, far, the Son walks in perfect obedience to the Father. And he does it because he knows that he loves him and because he walks in obedience. So too, we know that we're loved by the Father and we walk in obedience. Well, sin is a problem in and of itself. It's not something we want to do, but this speaks also to the idea that sin breaks our communion with God. And what I mean by that is, say, say you wake up in the morning and you spend time with God and you're very aware of the love of God and then you just spend the day being rude and offensive to your colleagues and at the end of it, you just come back and you think, actually, do you know what? I was really walking out of step with you, Lord. And there's often a sense of guilt and shame that comes with that a sense of distance that emerges whenever you think about the very worst things you've done, almost inevitably you'll experience guilt and shame and a distance from God. Sin is a problem because it disconnects us from God. Now, it need not, you need not stay there, you can come back to God, but there's a sense to which Christ is saying, if you want to maintain this connection with me, if you want to maintain and abide with me, you need to be walking in step with my commands. If you just ignore everything I have to say and just live your own life under your own authority without any reference to my commands, you can't really say you're remaining, that you're abiding in my love. Walk in obedience and abide in his love. Thirdly, his words. We abide with Christ when we allow his words to abide in us. Do you see verse seven? How do we know what abiding is? If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Christ abides in us by his spirit. It's an incredible, incredible reality. But he also abides in us by his words. As we engage with the word of God, this is not an ordinary book, brothers and sisters. This is the words of the living God. God who spoke into the universe, who created you, who put the breath in your lungs, has spoken to us in this word, which means this word has power to transform you. That's why we read it. Because that's the words to, of eternal life, the words to change you. So you need to be regularly reading the Bible. But more than that, I want you to be like cows. What do I mean, what do I mean by that? It means to be <laughs> cows. Ruminate on this word. What is a cow? It's a ruminating creature. It's a cow that cow eats the food, digests it, then regurgitates it, and, dig, and chews it over, and digests it some more. And it's that picture of, I think that is what it means to ruminate on Scripture to allow it to change you. If you've done this, you know the effect it has on you. I can only speak personally as I've abided in these words of John 15 over the last few days. It has just been so enriching to read of Christ's intention to bring fruitfulness to my life. The weight comes off the shoulders. The joy as you experience this love. I've, I can only tell you, just, just do it and then you'll believe me ruminate on these words. Take the words of Scripture. Write them out after you read them. Something, something strikes you. Maybe you feel like, maybe God, you're saying this to me, I'm going to write it out afterwards. Then I'm going to chew it over through the day. What does it mean? You know, I, was, I was reading uh, something like some of you uh, in Matthew chapter 5, those who are pure in heart will see God. I'm, I'm not doing it quite justice there, but the intention there. And as I ruminate, what does it mean to be pure in heart? I want to see you, God. Would you make me pure in heart? So I'm chewing it over. I'm praying it over. I'm thinking it all the way through the day. That is what it means to allow the words of Christ to abide in you. Allow them to change you. If you're just flicking it open, reading it, and then forgetting it, that's not really abiding in the words. Allow the words of Christ to change you. And finally, prayer. Jesus' intent here is that disciples see that his means of bringing fruit in their life is prayer. Verse seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He's talking about prayer. And the problem is when we hear that, we think it just sounds a bit hyperbolic, doesn't it? Really, I think maybe a better way of understanding that might be God will answer what you wish or say no when he knows better. One writer put it like this. God will either give us what we ask for in prayer or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. God intends to bear fruit in your life. God intends to change the world through your prayers. It feels a bit counterintuitive. It doesn't quite make sense, but God wants to use your prayers to change reality. That's why we pray every time we gather. That's why we pray before each service. Why we pray up a room. If you want to have a fruitful life, I encourage you to have a prayerful life. And what is the effect when you put these together? Are people who are abiding in Him, who are remaining connected to the vine, and whose lives look different as a result, who are fruitful? Well, two things, two effects. One. The Father is glorified. As you look at that beautiful vine with bunches of fruitful grapes, you can't help but marvel at the work of the gardener. So too, as we bear fruit, verse 8, by, by this my Father is glorified. We glorify God with fruitful lives. And second of all, this is going to surprise you, joy. As we connect ourselves, as we remain connected to the vine, as we live lives being changed by Christ, we experience true and lasting joy. This is Christ's recipe for a joyful life. Remain connected to me. We experience true joy, the joy of being friends with the living God, the joy of knowing that our sins are forgiven, the joy of seeing God at work in our lives, and in that, seeing and remembering his commitment to us, each as individuals. The joy of knowing God better, of seeing more of his glory and his beauty and his majesty and the joy of seeing him at work in the lives of the people around us. The joy of seeing him at work beyond us. This is a permanent and lasting joy. Not the temporary highs of worldly pleasures, but a permanent joy because we have a permanent assurance of Christ's love. So as we close, I want to really just you to hear Christ's invitation to come to me. Come to me. Come and abide with me. Maybe you feel like you're disconnected from Christ. Come to me. Maybe you feel some sense of distance. Come to me, Christ would say. Come and submit yourself to me. Come and invite me to work in your life. Repent of your own independence, your own (laughs) vision of fruitfulness that you've been running towards, that vision of success. Say, no, Christ, I want to have the fruitful life that you intend me to have. Repent of ignoring him. Say, Lord, I want to abide with you.